0: Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Good morning, Central. How are you today? Good to be with you. Please take your Bible today and uh, turn to John chapter 12. We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. It's been wonderful to uh, to study this together. So today we're uh, going to pick it up in John chapter 12 and verse 20, and we're going to go all the way to the, uh, the end of that chapter, to verse 50. So this morning I'm going to take sort of the classic three-point sermon to a whole new level and preach not just three points, but really three sermons, like, That's what Matt gets for going on spring break and leaving me 30 verses to cover in one Sunday, but uh, we'll try. Uh, Maybe three longer points, but you're you're thinking to yourself, oh no, three sermons? We're going to be here like till two o'clock, so let's get going. There's actually, Pastor Tyson, thank you for that prayer because we've got actually, I think God wants to say three distinct things to us today, although uh, one of those may affect you or impact you in greater ways than the others. But as I, as I go through John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50, think, think about three words. It's the title of the sermon. Think about Greeks. That's verses 20 through 26. Then there's a next, another chunk, which is actually two sections, which we'll combine, and we're going to call it glory, and then finish off with 44 through 50 by tying it all together and talking about the gospel, although the gospel is weaved through all of this. But let's, let's get into it and start at verse 20. John wrote, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I just want to stop there for a second. The feast that we're referring to is the Passover. If you back up to the beginning of John 12, verse 1, it says six days before the Passover, Jesus uh, went to Bethany on his way to Jerusalem where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. And there they they threw a party for him in honor of him for what they did for Lazarus. They paid homage to their king and were... Uh, Mary anointed him for his burial on his way to the cross. Then because people were flocking to Lazarus and sort of giving glory to God for this resurrection, you know, the leaders of the people had in mind to kill Lazarus too. They didn't want to just put Jesus to death, but Lazarus. And they're all making their way to the feast and crowds of people are picking up as Jesus goes on his way. So among them, it says, were some Greeks. That's significant. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now think glory. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world, will, will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Then the third section, which ties it all together, The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's back up all the way to verse 20 again. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. This is significant because there always had been, in Jewish worship, at the temple where Jesus was going, a separation. The people of God were always told to be distinct, separate from other nations, from the Gentiles, from the Greeks. The Greeks were included in the Gentiles, people who were not of the nation of God. And so... Even in the temple area, there's this separation where you have the court of Gentiles and you've got a court specifically for the Jewish people. And then from there, there was further separation into the holy place and a curtain to separate that from the holy of holies where God dwelled. And the death of Jesus did away with all of this. The death of Jesus did away with all that separation. And in verse 32, if you go a little further ahead in our text, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, uh, that, that means when Jesus was nailed to the cross and they lifted the cross up, just as Moses in the wilderness lifted up the snake, that all who saw it might be saved, just as the Son of Man would be lifted up on the cross in his death and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It is significant, significant in this text that John includes that those who went to worship at the Passover feast, the Jewish festival and feast, were Gentile. One author said, these men from the West. Now Bethsaida, in the grand scheme of things, was in the Western world at that time as they knew it. These men from the West represent at the end of Christ's life what the wise men from the East, also Gentiles, represented at its beginning, but those come to the cross of the king, even as these to his manger. Don't you just love it? Even as the Bible starts with a, a wedding and ends with a wedding, so the beginning and the end of Jesus' life has Gentiles who come to worship the King, those to his manger, and these now to his cross, the King of Kings, who represents the span and the scope of Jesus' finished work on the cross, where all people would be invited and drawn to him for salvation, for forgiveness. The span of Christ's redeeming work is this. When I I read what this author said about these from the west and those from the east who came to the, the manger and the cross, my mind went to Psalm 103 verse 12 which says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen? Can I get an amen to that? That is good news. We're already into the gospel. And when And when these Greeks showed up and they were introduced to Jesus by Philip and Andrew, Jesus said right away, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the greatest act of his glorification was what he accomplished at the cross. Now is the time, the span, the scope from the east to the west is now complete. I'm ready to go to the cross to die. And right after that, Jesus said, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I always, I can't help but talking when I preach about my agrarian roots growing up in the prairies. I just have to get it in. My favorite time of the year growing up as a kid in Saskatchewan on the farm was harvest harvest. Favorite time of the year, September. End of August till early October, really, but September was the glorious time of year on the prairies. Here on the coast, I think it's spring. Finally starting to come. On my way out of the complex this morning, I saw some crocuses and they got flowers on them. They're starting to open. So spring is arriving. No more snow. But on the prairies, it was fall. Fall is when you have the glorious colors and the dust and the rolling hills of of the wheat and the barley fields. And when my dad would take control of the harvest, he did all the combining and us boys, we would do all of the running to get this and that and get parts and help with that and truck the grain and put it in the bin. We stayed up till all hours, sometimes all night to get it done. My dad would would always evaluate three things continually. One was the moisture content in the grain. You didn't want to put it into the bin too wet. We could dry it a little bit in there, but you—you you, you, there was a point. The next one was the grade or the quality of the grain. But always, always evaluating the yield. Always. Is this going to be 40 bushels to the acre? Or 60? Or 80? Or, Lord willing, 100? I remember times when we would... Harvest and the wheat was of a grade A, number one wheat quality. We would bring it into the elevator so the, the grain man could check it for quality and moisture. And when that was combined with 80 or 100, sometimes really even a little bit more bushels per, per acre, my dad was just beaming. That's a harvest. And I think what Jesus was saying here, if that little kernel of grain remains all by itself, you know, that's good for the Jewish people. But unless that grain falls into the ground and it sprouts up and it bears 40, 60, 80, a hundred times from when it went in, it's not good enough. The gospel needs to bear much fruit. For the Son of Man, Jesus said in Luke 19, did not, came to seek, the, seek and to save the lost. It doesn't say that he came to seek and to save the Jew, which certainly is included, but it's not limited to them. He says the lost, that's multiplication, not addition. Addition is not, is not part of God's math. He wants multiplication. And so when we as a church, we talk about people coming to Jesus and being discipled primarily in our small groups, our life groups, and when those groups grow, we're excited and those groups want to stay together and we say, no, multiply. But people get a little bent out of shape and say, well, you're dividing us. No, we're not. We're multiplying you. It's kingdom work. It's the way it should be. Our denomination has a, a church planting arm, and it was renamed a number of years ago, Sea to Sea, for he shall have dominion from sea to sea. And we want to see churches planted and the multiplication of disciples from coast to coast, and now that same network is, is pushing into the United States, and they're helping not only there, but internationally across the waters, where their mandate first was in BC, then Canada, now globally. And you see, that's good because Jesus' mission is a global, multiplying mission. And so the CDC network every year puts on a conference and they call it Multiply. (laughs) Fittingly named, the pastoral staff and some of the elders went this year, just about a month ago. Oh, what an inspiring time to think about the church in a different way. The church can think in no less terms than multiplication. Chilliwack, the district of Kent, which includes Agassiz, Africa, Thailand, and I'm thankful for a group of leaders of this church who are thinking multiplication. It's the way it's designed to be. Look at verse 19 when the Pharisees, back up and put it into context, the Pharisees and the leaders, you know, they were losing control and everybody's going after Jesus and they're like, what happened to Lazarus? And and the harder they tried to persecute the church and threaten them with death, the more it grew and the, and the larger the crowds came, became. And the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing by doing this. Look, the world has gone after him. Mission accomplished for Jesus the world has gone after him. For God so loved the world, wrote John in chapter 3, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen? It's about the world. Which starts right here. Matthew 28. Jesus said at the end of after he had risen from the dead, and he gathers the disciples for one more huddle. He said, you know what, guys? All authority given it to me. I'm transferring it to you now. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Read Revelation. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people represented on earth will be worshiping before the throne of God those who have accepted the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, starting in Jerusalem, then Samaria, Judea, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Matthew 24, Jesus says, and the gospel of this kingdom, Jesus is the king and the ruler over it, this kingdom, which is here and now, but will also be in eternity. The gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And listen, you, you and I can, can speed up the return of Jesus Christ literally by participating in this global kingdom and making sure that the message of Jesus is proclaimed to the whole world. And when everybody's had a chance to hear, then Jesus will come back. Amen. Come Lord Jesus is what the authors of scripture wrote. Maranatha. And you know what? This kind of engagement in in global mission, multiplying mission calls for the kind of servants described by Jesus in this section. Whoever, verse 25, loves his life, loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am going there. Will my servant be also? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Are you honored this morning by the Lord, by the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you're serving him and literally hating your own life for the sake of eternal life? I think it is significant in John chapter 12 here that Philip and Andrew are mentioned specifically One commentator said, you know, the reason these Greeks went to them is because they were probably living in the same region. So you can recognize people regionally, and so they felt comfortable with Philip and Andrew. But I I think there's much more going on than that. If you back up right to the beginning of John chapter 1, when Jesus was calling his first disciples, listen to this. This is not coincidental. Verse 40, one of the two who had heard John, that's John the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus, one of the two was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the leader of the early church, was brought to Jesus by his brother, And then, verse 43 of chapter 1, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, which is the region where these guys were from. He found Philip. Hmm, Andrew, Philip. And he said, follow me. Now, Philip, he wanted to follow Jesus, but first look what happened. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They all resided in the same area. Philip first went and found (laughs) Nathanael. Said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Look, these two men were proven to be faithful in bringing people to Jesus, and it is not coincidental that these Greeks show up, and who? Lo and behold, Philip and Andrew were there bringing them to Jesus. They were just faithful to do what Jesus was asking them to do. You know, in Luke, Luke 17, Jesus talked about what it means to be a servant of Christ. I'm going to paraphrase But basically he says, you know, when a master has servants and he tells them to go work in the field for the day, they go do it. Jesus says they work in the field for the day and when they come back, words of Jesus, do they expect to sit down at the same supper table with the master and eat with him? Jesus said, huh? You're done working in the field, you clean, get washed up, and then you prepare supper for the master. And when the master is eaten and he's had enough and he's been glorified then it's your turn to sit down and eat. This is challenging for me. Am I that kind of servant? (laughs) Am I a Philip and an Andrew bringing people to Jesus? For each one of us, it's going to look a little different. But the point is, servants of Christ are unworthy to even sit at the same table and eat with the king. We're asked to do what he asks us to do. And when it's all done, then we will eat with him in, the, in, the, in his father's glory in the kingdom. But up until that point, there is work to do. When we think we've finished working, there's more work to do. We come in from the field then we have to prepare supper so that people can see who Jesus is. And you know what? When he started, he'll finish. By the power of his spirit, he has not left us alone. The seed has been sown. And now it is time to go bring in the harvest. And you know, in Luke chapter 10, this is something that the, the, the reason why our, our church planting network is doing so well, I believe, in our, in our nation and now internationally, is because every day at two minutes after 10 the leaders of our church planting network pray Luke 10 verse 2. So at 10.02 every day, this is, they stop everything, their alarm goes off, and they pray what Jesus said. And Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Guys, it's it's a bumper crop. Like, that's exciting. It's exciting to truck and to be involved in the harvest and to combine when you know that the harvest is plentiful. I remember years when you know, we, we couldn't even make it back to the field. We, we we didn't wait. My dad was waiting for us with the flashers going, come and get this load of grain already. What took you guys so long dumping that load? Let's, let's go. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful. It's fun. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest would you join our denomination would you join us at central to pray that oh we've got a great harvest people are coming to faith our rooms are full of kids we need workers continually for all kinds of things would you pray that god would send workers into the harvest beginning right here in chilliwack in an agassiz and would you pray first that it would include you Better move on. I got two more sermons to preach. Okay, we're going to talk about glory now, but the harvest is a work of glory. Verses twenty-seven to forty-three. We're going to we're going to talk about two things that are opposed to each other: the glory of God and the glory of man. And we see in the first uh, section the glory of God. Now my soul is is my soul troubled," said Jesus. "And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour." But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We see, first of all, the glory of God and that Jesus came for the glory, God's glory. The reason he came was to go to the cross. That was his purpose. The greatest act of glorification possible is what Jesus accomplished when he was lifted up. And you know what? That path is the difficult path. It is the path of most resistance. Jesus was troubled. I mean, wouldn't you be if you knew that within a matter of a day or two, you would be nailed to a cross? First of all, beaten, whipped, spit upon, mocked, cursed, and then nailed to a cross to die a torturous death? I mean, wouldn't you be troubled? I would be. I'd run. And yet, what shall I say, said Jesus? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And if we want to bring glory to God, we have to take the path, the difficult path, the path of most resistance, because that is the path that leads to life. And what do we do? We want the path of least resistance, the easy path, the broad path. And Jesus said, the broad path leads to destruction. But the narrow path, the difficult one, leads to life. That is where the re- reward is. I don't know if any of you have had an experience uh, tree planting, like in northern BC. But I, I had that experience a couple of years. I remember the first time I went out after my first year of Bible college. Can you remember, I'm from the prairie, so I'm studying down at Barriarka, southern Saskatchewan, where there are probably this many trees <laughs> to uh, maybe one, two, They don't block the wind much, trust me. So so I'm going from there to northern BC, like north of Prince George, Chetwin, and all these, like way up, right? And uh, first day, you know, we we get into this big wide open area, and uh, apparently it was easy. (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) It's the hardest thing I'd ever done, you know just getting those boots on is hard, and then handling the shovel, and, and like, oh my goodness, by the end of the day, like, I hit the pillow, and I think I was asleep before, you know, before I even knew what was happening, and it was, there was long days, 14 hours, 16 hours at times, just planting, because you wanted to maximize your time, and make money, but we stopped at this place, and we're learning how to how to plant, and I'll never forget, we barely got our boots on and our bags on our back with all the trees in them, and the veteran on the crew, this was his sixth or seventh year or something, he'd already done half of his section that he was assigned. He's just cruising. And we're like, "How, how does he do that? He goes, oh, this is easy. You guys just wait. But you know, the easy sections, they only paid like three, four, five cents a tree. The more difficult it got the more the pay went up. And boy, did it get difficult. I remember one path we traveled to get to a difficult spot. Remember, I'm from the prairies. Here's here's the side of a mountain that had been cleared and and a logging road. And we couldn't pass a logging road without multiple times using the winch to pull us through like it was a rough road. And you've got an incline there and a decline there and you're saying, Oh, Lord. If, we, <laughs> if just one wheel goes off, like, they'll never find us. Literally. No trees to stop you. <laughs> You're gone. But it was in those areas, and I remember one in particular, we got to our tree planting spot for the day, and again, the inclines were like this, and we're helping each other up to plant trees. 25 cents a tree. You make a buck when you plant four, but it was hard work. But I tell you, you're motivated because the reward is greater. The road Jesus took was hard. But look what was accomplished. One more quick story. We were in a difficult area planting, and there was a, a section cleared out in the middle of some trees, just a round area and there had been grizzlies spotted in there. So our supervisor said, the first three volunteers to go into that area will receive extra pay, and by the way, you can take this high-powered rifle with you. It's like, I was in. <laughs> I'm going. <laughs> Two other guys, we walked in, and like it was creepy. These grizzlies, they're not kind, and they'll stalk you. So anyway, we... We went in there and we said, okay, here's the plan. We formulated the plan. This is where we're going to put the gun so that it has easy access to all three of us. We, we planted in a triangle to make sure that we were always, could see each other and knew where the gun was. A- and uh, I tell you, we planted fast. <laughs> and we got out of there. But again, it was great reward because they gave us danger pay for that one. If you're willing to put your life at risk, there's greater reward what jesus came to do for us jesus came for god's glory he lived for god's glory verses 29 through 30 you know the crowd that heard you know uh, the father glorify the son and 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 uh, when jesus came for his glory you know they heard this and they said and then jesus said you know what this voice didn't come this voice has come for your sake not mine I know what's going on here, but it's for your sake. Jesus lived for for God's glory as a model for us to follow. He came for one reason, that others might see and hear God, and when they did, his life was well lived. Jesus died for God's glory. We've said so much about this already, but verses 31 through 36, it literally says, Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, then two things will happen. Satan will be cast out, and we will be drawn in. Love that. You go to Colossians chapter 2, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. You know, when Jesus went to the cross there, he disarmed all of the powers and authorities that stood opposed. Having been he nailed it to the cross. It's done. Satan has been defeated. And you know what? The struggle, uh, the the spiritual struggle that we currently face now is described in Ephesians chapter 6 began long before the creation of mankind, that struggle in the heavenlies of Lucifer, who what? Wanted a piece of God's glory. He wanted to take God's glory from him, and, and God said, no, it's not going to happen. So you and all those rebellious angels that, are, that want this, out. And the struggle's been on ever since. And it's always over who gets the glory. Always. And so when we don't resist and stand firm with the armor of God and with the power of his spirit, the might of his spirit that he's given us, and we lay down and take the easy path, the broad road, the path of least resistance, and we yield to the enemy who gets the glory. Not the Father. But when we resist, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, we don't struggle with each other, friends. Stop fighting each other. In marriage, husband and wife, if you're not getting along, stop fighting each other. That's not your struggle. when we take up the authority of Jesus and what he has already accomplished at the cross, And in his power, we resist the enemy of God. God gets the glory. Amen? And when God gets the glory in your struggle, husband and wife, in your marriage, he'll be be known. He'll be known to your friends. He'll be known in your school, in your community, because your marriage will be vibrant. He won't be struggling with each other. It'll be a picture of what, what God has accomplished in Christ for you. Parents with children, stop struggling with one another. Bring it to God in prayer. Sure, get some counseling, but don't fight each other. Man, I got another sermon to preach, so I better get moving here. You know what's cool about this? I, I like visual stuff. But in this chunk, verses uh, 27 to 43, we, f- we see a four-way movement. It's kind of like a choir conductor. You know those guys that used to do this? Do you remember those days? I do. I grew up in the prairies. Did I say that already? (laughs) Lots of hymns and lots of choirs. Tyson, you're going to have fun. Got to lead them like this. But what happened is when Jesus came down, that's what this says, when Jesus came down, God lifted him up and Satan was cast out and we were drawn in. That's the best music you'll ever hear. Jesus came down, God lifted him up, Satan was cast out and we are drawn in compare that to the glory of man. Let's go right to the end of this section real fast. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you know what? If you read through the passage again, the glory of man is characterized by these things. Darkness. You will stumble around as a blind in, in blind darkness if you don't embrace the glory of God. It's characterized by unbelief, by hardness of heart, by fear, by sickness. You're not going to be healed. That's what the scripture says. I think spiritually is our greatest healing. But the key characteristic of the glory of man is silence. God is not glorified when we remain silent. It, it says many of the, even many of the Pharisees and the rulers believed in him, but they didn't confess it. They refused to confess it because as soon as they would say it out loud, persecution. They'd be put out of the synagogue. Now when the Father was glorified, what did the disciples hear? When Jesus was glorified at his baptism, what did everybody hear? An audible voice. God speaking from heaven. He did not remain silent. This is my son. This is what it's all about. And Isaiah, oh man, back up to verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke of him. When we see the glory of God, we can't keep silent. I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit, but I, it, first service, I took us back to Isaiah chapter 6. Mark it down. Chapters 1 through 5 in Isaiah are gloomy. It talks about darkness and oppression and sin and wickedness to the point where Isaiah's is like, he was overwhelmed. Actually, I'm going to go there. I can't help but read this. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, after all of this gloom, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. He covered two with his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah was so overwhelmed with the glory of God in, the, in his holiness, in his temple. It says, the foundations of the, of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And he said, Isaiah said, woe is me, I, I'm, for I'm ruined, I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. Up to that point, Isaiah couldn't even speak because he was so unclean and so unworthy. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah literally saw Jesus. He saw the King. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs from the altar. And what did he touch? Did he touch Isaiah's heart or his head? No, he touched his lips. He said, Your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, you're forgiven the holiness of God. When we, when we see the king and we bow before the king, we're forgiven as we make him ruler and master of our life. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. He touched his lips and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go? And I said, Here am I, send me. And, and Isaiah's mouth was opened to declare who Jesus was, to bring people to Jesus and he did that more than any other prophet. We quoted all the time at Christmas, don't we? All the prophet, prophecies from Isaiah. And he said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Let's finish it off by tying this together with the gospel real quick. The good news of Jesus means, if we go back to John chapter 12 here for a second, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but also in him who's, but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring condemnation, I came to bring salvation, and when you believe the words, and you speak them, there is eternal life, because Jesus said, they come from the Father, not from me. I'm doing what he says I should do, and say what I should do. The good news is to believe in Jesus and the one who sent him, That's affirmed a little later in chapter John, verse 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's all about God's glory. And the best way we can glorify him is to believe in Jesus and in the one who sent him and to confess that. The good news means to be transferred from darkness to light. I wish I had time to read for you about six or seven different passages I have listed here on what it means to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But that is what Jesus came to accomplish for you. And when you follow him, you walk in light. And you're no longer bound by darkness and stumbling through life. And third, the good news of the gospel is to be free from condemnation. That's what Jesus said here. I didn't come to judge or condemn. I came to save you. John 3:16 and 17. For God sent his son to save you, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Romans 8 Paul said those who are in, for those who are in Christ Jesus there is therefore now no condemnation but we have to as Romans 10 9 and 10 says we need to believe in our heart what Jesus did for us that he came to this earth he died for our sins he was buried he was raised to life and then confess him as our Lord and our Savior and we will be saved let's wrap this up Take the outline that I've given you in reverse, and in summary, I think this is a good summary statement of today's message. We are saved by God's grace, for God's glory, and into God's service. That's what it's about. So the three questions I have to ask you this morning are in conjunction with this outline in reverse. Have you been saved by God's grace? For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith in what Jesus did not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not so that none of us can boast. Are you there? Have you been saved by God's grace? Have you trusted in Jesus and the finished work of the cross? If not, today is the day. Scripture says now is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, because if you harden your heart, God will make it harder and harder. And you'll be just like those Pharisees who refused to confess. They believed it, but they didn't want to declare it. So declare it today, and then I want to talk to you. There's a connecting card. There's a section on there that says, I committed my life to Christ today, or I renewed my commitment to him. Check it off. Let one of us pastors or elders phone you that we might rejoice with you. Secondly, am I living for God's glory? And remember, the greatest way we can bring God's glory is by this to bring people to Jesus and to tell them about Jesus. So I want to encourage you in your own way, don't be silent. There are opportunities all around us to to bring people to Jesus. They're there, just take them. The person you're talking to, I'll bet you is more scared than you are. (laughs) What have you got to lose? Engage in this global, multiplying mission that God has given us and that's my third question are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus in service to the king are you all in are you willing to lay down your life to hate your own life for the sake of eternal life that others might come to know him it's my challenge to you it's the challenge of God to all of us this morning convicting message for me convicting message for me we are saved by God's grace for his glory and into his service. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you so much that you loved us to the point of death to save us. Jesus, you lived your life not for your own glory, but to the glory of the Father, and you took the hard path for me, for all of us, and we, we say thank you, and we embrace what you've done for us. Lord, we are unworthy to be called your servants, but Lord, help us to work hard in your field and at your table that others might come to know you. And thank you, God, that we are free from condemnation, that you came to save us, not the judges. But we know in the end there will be a judgment. Help us to be ready for that, Lord, and not be found lacking. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.